Smart Council is a production of New Pattern Counseling, with additional support from Multnomah University. To learn how to support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Reese Basimio is a counselor, teacher, and writer, and the founder of New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon. His clinical specialties are addictions, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Ben Poling is a counselor at a New Day Counseling Center in Portland, Oregon. He specializes in identity, relationships, and sexual addiction. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Smart Council, making lasting changes. Smart Council provides counselors' perspectives on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese Basimio. I'm Ben Poling. And we are here on a sunny, it's actually a very sunny Saturday morning in Portland in spring, which is sort of a novelty. And we like novelty. But anyway, we are here in the uh, Zoom recording space with a dear friend and colleague, Stephen Grant. Stephen, how's it going? I'm doing well. Thanks for inviting me. Great. I'm glad you could be here. And this is kind of fun. I think it's the first time we've had a crew of uh, all CSAT or CSAT candidate folks on on the show. Although, Ben, aren't you done with all of your hours, though? Are you? Yes, uh, I submitted the paperwork. There's still some stuff they need from me. But yes, I'm done with all my hours and just need to give them some more paperwork. And some more money. I gave them the money. I'm sure sure they've already taken it to the bank. (laughs) (laughs) Probably, yeah. Okay, but uh, Ben, thank you, thank you. I hear it can. I mean, some of my it it can take a while before you get your actual paperwork. But I'm just going to say, if you've done all your coursework, you've done all your supervision, you're basically a CSAT. You're done. You're a CSAT. The real thing. Thank you. Yes. Right. And. Uh, for the for the listener who may not know, that stands for Certified Sex Addiction Therapist, which is what we all do and are, and uh, I like it. I like talking about sex. So it's it, it certainly makes for some interesting conversations. For sure. <clears throat> Stephen, would you uh, give a brief introduction of yourself and what you do, what is your corner of the counseling world, who's your favorite type of client, et cetera? So, well, clearly with a CSAT, um, designation, I work with a lot of sex addicts, but I also, I think probably my niche in the CSAT world is not just working with the, uh, the C, the, the addict, but working with the couple that's dealing with addiction. So I do a lot of couples work about a third of my practice is couples work. Now, not all that couples work is with sex addicts. I love the mess of couples work. So, um, I like to get into it and uh, that's when I was actually creating uh, my new web page, which is gracefallcounseling.com. Then uh, the guy that was helping me create it and helping me tell the story was saying, who's your favorite client and who do you like to work with best? And I said, couples. And it really surprised him because I was, we all dropped a lot of money to become certified sex addiction therapists. And he was expecting me to say sex addicts, but really my, what my first love is, is working with couples that are in crisis. Um, Which we're very glad for because both Reese and I don't like doing that. I don't like doing so that. You, you can have them all. all of them. <laughs> so uh, 
I think that one of the things I'm toying with right now is that ITAP, which is the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals, Professionals, who is the certifying body for us, has put together a partner training program. And I think that that might be something I will look at because uh, my my interest primarily in working with sex sex addicts um, came out of working with pastors that were struggling with immorality and struggling in that whole um, arena. Um, And the reason for my interest in that is there is a one-to-one, there's an absolute one-to-one correlation. If you're a pastor who is struggling with addiction of any form, you are spiritually abusive. There's no way around not being spiritually abusive. I mean, we could go into the ins and outs of why that's true, but I am concerned about um, preventing further abuse. And that is my primary concern. Um, I work with a lot of pastors and missionaries and a lot of missionary kids and third culture kids that have grown up in the church. Um, So um, that has been another focus of mine as well. Um, So that is my primary arena. At this point in our recording session, we were all just having so much fun together and we got off on several tangents, uh, one of which ended up being about how we are individually in our individual practices working with the social distancing and the telehealth and uh, to what degree we still see individuals in person and under what circumstances and what safety precautions we take. And that's where I drop us back into the conversation because this tangent did end up working its way back into the topic we were talking about. So here we are. I had a, I intentionally had a client come in person for, it was a a 16 year old. I didn't want to do a, an intake uh, online with, with a 16 year old. So I had him and his mom come in and one of our other counselors here went into the waiting room when they were out there. Um, And then, you know, uh, the next day I get a phone call from that therapist, like, Hey, uh, just wondering, like, are you still seeing people in person? Like what's, what's going on? I was really concerned when I saw somebody in the waiting room. I'm like, don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about that for a minute, because I think as a CSAT, one of the things that's true in this age of the pandemic, and this is just a a choice I've made with some of my clients, either partners of um, addicts or addicts themselves that don't have a safe space to do telehealth with me. I am actually still meeting them in person. So about a third of my practice is still seeing me in person because it's not safe for them to see me any other way and they need to see me. And so I've made, and I'm in a solo practice, so I don't have all the things going on that you have going on um, with therapists coming in, you know, millions of people coming and going. Um, But I, I think that sometimes there's been this push that if you're seeing people in person, you're somehow betraying society. And I think that it's some, for some of our clients, if we're not seeing them in person, we're betraying society. And I just need to make that, uh, people still need, especially people that are on the edge that their lives are in, in, you engaged with this, um, that they could lose everything if they continue in their behaviors and they need a safe place to be able to come and talk. I think a really client-centered, trauma-informed approach should allow for that and allow for that um, in, in what is in service for the client. I mean, ultimately, it is in service of society, and sometimes it needs to be in person. 
and there's just some some scenarios where you're right there maybe people don't have access to the online forums or they don't have a safe space in their home or just i know whatever the the personal dynamic is so i i'm glad to hear you say that and i and i appreciate you taking that stand so i've done such cra- i mean i've done crazy things to try to protect things so like again i'm a solo practitioner so um, people come up to my office, which is on the third place, third floor of an office building. I'm in an executive suite. And I've asked them not to touch any doorknobs. I lay down those those shop towels that are like, they're like paper towels, but, you know, and I put those across the armrests. Fortunately, the shop towels that I bought are blue and my chairs are blue, so they kind of match the decor. And then I ask them to take it with them when they leave and then replace them after they've left. And then I have hand sanitizer inside the door and I ask oh, yeah. them to wipe their hands when they come in. And in a bit, we're going to talk about art as a therapy model module, and that has had to be put on hold for now because I can't get I, I don't feel safe enough getting to my client close enough to my clients to actually perform the therapy um, because it's rapid eye movement with a hand movement in terms of our preferred method of or protocol of delivery. Um, and so I have had to pull back on some people that I would typically be able to use you know, protocols I would typically use for trauma um, and not be able to use those with them. And that's kind of a downer. Um, But I do see us as providing an essential service to our clients to help sometimes protect their lives or their family's lives. Um, Certainly their careers, their jobs, their, and and I, 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 I want to be client centric in my approach and relationally centric in my approach. So, Absolutely. and I totally get people that can't be because their wives are expecting or their autoimmune issues. Like if my daughter was in this field and she's not, but if she was in this field, given her health concerns, I would totally understand her going completely to a telehealth because she, she would need to protect herself. So I want to see both things being, being said. So, yeah, it's nice to have both options and I'm very thankful for the online technology for for what it's offering and i'm also very much feeling the limits of it and feeling the the profound effects of the of the social distancing i mean it's i mean not that everybody is always all together anyway and there's a lot of people that kind of like being distanced and, and isolated but but something changes when it becomes you you have to be distanced and uh that that's been having some some really stunning effects i think but but so you mentioned art and I want to set the stage for that and and what uh, what our original conversation was. Um, so we wanted to talk about lasting change and how do you make lasting change now in our context, working with uh, people with addictions, people with compulsive behaviors. Uh, ben, Stephen, what are some uh, I guess what are some of the challenges you've observed in people trying to make lasting change? Like what kind of changes are we talking about and what tends to get in the way? Yeah, I think you know some some of the things that I notice you know, or that that I think about is ambivalence. I guess at first comes up for me. There's um, for many people, well, for most people, with most changes, there's some degree of ambivalence. There's a desire to change, and there's a desire to stay the same. Um, and so, and with with addicts, um, you know, there's often a, a great degree of ambivalence where. You know they're they're experiencing consequences, but their behavior uh, is also something that they they get benefits from, and so they they don't want to lose that. Um, and so it, there's there that's that's a big barrier to change <clears throat> that that I see and and try and normalize and work with 
people's ambivalence. Um, uh, as far as like m making change, lasting change, I, I often think about first order and second order change. Um, and uh, first order change being sort of the behavioral changes that you make um, uh, in your life, um, uh, more, more physical changes. And the second order change being um, more internal changes of thought um, and uh, those tend to be more lasting changes um, and, and can can keep things uh, more stable for longer periods of time so um, that's usually you know when I'm working with with addicts in particular usually you know we, we aim for some some significant first order change in the beginning to get some um, some safety some distance from the, the acting out behaviors, um, and then and then work towards that second order change that will be a more lasting change for them. I've always really appreciated that framework of first and second order change, or um, like thinking back through through more uh, more more Christianese terms. You know, changing changing the behaviors versus changing the heart or the the inner person, uh, because it's it's a real thing. You can change. Uh, with the right external structures, you can change your outer behaviors easily. Like it's maybe kind of easy to be, you know, clean and sober from drugs when you're in a jail cell, unless it's not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, but that doesn't demand that doesn't necessarily change anything in on the inward person. And that that second order change, that the inward change, I feel like that that is the really essential key. And so building off of that, one of the other barriers I see to making lasting changes is when honestly, you just don't believe in it. You don't believe fully in what it's doing for you, why you need it or, or anything. The reality being making change is costly and sometimes painful. And if, if the prize is good enough, you know, you can, you can endure the toil. And if you, if your conviction is firm enough, you can, you can put up with uh, all of the cost to it. But if that's not there, and that will waver. One of the other barriers I've seen to making lasting changes too is when maybe people try to make too many changes all at once and they try to reform their whole lives in a day or in a month and they just get really overwhelmed and really disoriented because everything in their life is different and they just cannot sustain it uh, mm -hmm. compared to sometimes making incremental changes, small changes seems to be more effective. So man, you guys said some good stuff. So I was actually trying to jot down some notes. Um, ben, when you were talking about ambivalence, mm -hmm. and I immediately went to um, one of the questions I asked my clients. I, I just build on it. I say, how many physical, how many body parts do you have? And, and, <laughs> and I say, there's no right answer. Just go ahead and tell me. I mean, and, and it's anything from, I mean, some people are saying, suggesting that we have 17 major bot, uh, organs in our body. So you could come up with that answer, but if you, there's over 200 bones in our body, so you could, you know, up it by that. So you start talking about all the different parts that make up our body. We think of one body, but we think of lots of parts. And so then I say, so how many parts to your psyche or your soul? Ooh. And, and uh, they've never thought about that. And then I connect that to something that we were talking about last time we chatted, which was the concept of memory and parts being a, attached to our memories and 
where memories are stored and how memories are stored. And this actually leads into later on when we talk about art, why art is so important. Um, but that we have all these different parts. And I think that ambivalence that you were talking about, Ben, is literally our parts talking to each other inside of us. Mm -hmm. And we have this part that really, really, really wants to be pure and right and upright and do the right things. And then we have this part that really wants pleasure and really needs relief. Yeah. And those parts are involved in a discussion inside of us. And part of our job, I think, as CSATs is to help those parts integrate and help those parts figure out what their role in in our whole really is. And so I talk about the word remember because uh, it's connected to memories. And I talk about remembering and that's like I'm, I'm reattaching a finger to a hand. I'm remembering it, I'm connecting it and how I connect it differently and how I change that will affect my ambivalent level. And so, I think the other thing that you said that really, really struck me and is true for our work as CSATs, it's, it's so true, is we have to create space. We've got to create psychic space. We've got to, we've, you've got to get clean. You've got to stop acting out. You've got to stop mm. the behaviors before we can do any meaningful work because the, your behaviors are stopping you from feel. They're, they're stopping you from feeling. They're stopping you from yeah. being fully alive. They're stopping mm. you from being the real boy that Pinocchio wanted to be, right? They're, they're keeping us as incomplete. And so we have to get some, what, you're, what you called first order change, the physical changes, just grab your ass, hold on. You know, if you're grabbing your ass, you can't grab anything else, so you're safe. You know, it's, it's one of those, you know, it's one of those, you just, whatever it takes, you know, and this is why so many times if you're in meetings, you hear 90 days, 90 meetings in 90 days, I know that I'm a recovering sex addict. I don't know about you guys. So um, I I went to 270 meetings in 270 days. I was often uh, multiple meetings a day just just so I wouldn't act out. And in our area, in, in the metropolitan Portland area, you can get to two or three meetings a day if you need to. And then I added not just S meetings, but I would go to AA meetings and NA meetings um, because in the words of NA and addicts and addicts and addict, um, there are all sorts of other trouble going to an NA meeting that we could address at some point, but um, the language and the call to uh, to sobriety and to staying clean are, are still the same. The steps are still the same and you can still talk about that. I know that when I went to AA meetings, instead of saying, my name's Steven, I'm an alcoholic, I'd say, hey, my name's Steven and I'm a drunk. And in my mind, <laughs> I'm going, I'm a sex drunk. They don't need to know that. So, but then, then everything else from there is the same language, right? What, I, what I'm, what I'm loving about what you're saying, Stephen, are, or Stephen and Ben, as we're talking about like this first order change. You know, the first order change seems very targeted at the behaviors, which is, we could maybe say it is, it's on the surface, and maybe not the the most profound change. But the other component I want to lace into this is the idea that uh, initial change is very embodied. You know, you're, you're physically going through the experience of a detox. You're physically getting, getting your butt into the seat, into the chair of, of the meeting or the service or whatever it is. And that concept has stuck out to me as I've lately been in a more liturgical, spiritual tradition where there's, there's a lot of tradition, a lot of ritual, uh, and a lot of, lot of rhythms. In one sense, I mean, we, 
uh, we, we criticize the phrase, we, we go through the motions um, to say, oh, like you're going through the motions, like you're not really thinking about it. It's just, you're not really engaged. But in another sense, going through the motions is a really good thing because you're, you're training yourself, you're conditioning yourself, you're reinforcing to your body, uh, to your senses that here is, here is healthy life in whatever sphere you're, you're targeting. And you do that long enough while also gaining understanding of what you're doing and also connecting with people. And at some point, those external behavioral, very embodied changes start to internalize and you do take on a lot more meaning and a lot more depth. And I think having a very embodied physical component of your first order change is really essential for laying the, the, the groundwork for, for good second order change to happen. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful uh, statement that I think is so, I, I never heard it phrased that way, but we have to start with embodiment. You can't do any meaningful change unless we've, we create space to do it. I love the way you phrased it, that the first order change is always embodied. I think that's, that's tweetable. Oh, thanks. <laughs> the other thing that, Reese, as you were talking about that I thought was brilliant was this work requires grief. I mean, you didn't phrase mm. it that way, but this mm-hmm. work requires grief. Absolutely. Um, and if you can't do good grief work, you can't good, do good change work. Then the other thing that you said that spurred me to think, I would, I'm going to venture to add to this congregation or this con- congregation, this congregation's conversation um, <laughs> that it's not just first and second order change, but it's actually third order change that we need to get to. How very Trinitarian of you. Well, that's <laughs> well, and I was, as you were talking, then I just jotted down body, soul, spirit. Okay. So yeah. the first order change is embodied. The second order change, which is soul, is our thoughts, what's going on inside, just our prefrontal cortex brain, um, and I'll limit it to prefrontal cortex brain at that point. And then the third order change is, I argue strongly that we are wounded in relationship and we need to be healed in relationship. And that unless we have a change below our conscious level, below our cognitive thought level, below our behavioral level to a place where we are literally changing our relationship, not just to people, but our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to God, our relationship to the world, then we're missing the point of how change takes place. So that's what I would say is the third order change is that relational change. And that involves then several components because when I talk about change or relationship to myself, I'm talking about my relationship to my memory my relationship to my motivations, my relationship to those kinds of things. And I need to literally change those relationships in order to be able to not have them haunt me in the present. Changing the relationships with the different parts of yourself. um, That makes a lot of sense Uh, from, I mean, we reference like a Trinitarian perspective, but I think also from like an internal family systems perspective too, recognizing like like you were talking about the different voices in yourself that that will argue or or Ben you were talking about the ambivalence and um yeah resolving those internal relationships does seem really requisite for resolving relationships externally as well mm-hmm. so that's what i would call the third order change yeah that's something that i've been um often talking with clients about lately in this arena of of sex addiction 
um, is the the need to to get connect uh, to to get connected again, and that you know, so talking about relationships with others, but also more importantly and primarily your relationship with yourself, uh, need, needing to heal and and get connected with yourself. And I think I think that's really similar to what you're saying, Stephen, in that you know. It, you need to you need to heal in your relationship with yourself and and learn how to um, how to relate well with yourself. Um, and I think you have to do that before you can relate well with other people, before you can heal your relationships with others, um, or God, or God, or your or higher God. power. If you don't want to yes. use God, so yes. I, I I am also affirming this this notion too of having a having a solid relationship with yourself. Uh, developing a good, uh, I, I often use the terms like uh, resilience or an internal tolerance or a good distress tolerance, being able to, to fully experience your, your internal reality, your body, your emotions, your, your mind. Because when you can do that, then you can more easily fully experience the experience of another person. And that becomes the, the neurological platform for, for intimacy. So let's talk a little bit about how we might approach that and some specific tools. And, and here, uh, Stephen, um, I know when we went to this the first time, you were talking about accelerated resolution therapy or yes. ART as, as, um, as, your, uh, as the method you're excited about these days. And it was really, really interesting. So uh, do tell, what, what, what is art? What do you like about it? How does it work, okay. et cetera? So let me, when you, do this work with CSATs. Can I give some background on this, Therese, besides just jumping right into art? Sure, sure. When, if I'm going to build a pyramid, kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs in terms of doing this work, I think at the bottom of the pyramid is trauma. And trauma is at the basis of that trauma then. Trauma is always by nature isolating. It, by definition, trauma is isolating. And that isolation then leads to pathology, which leads to broken relationships. And then pathology can go all sorts of different directions, right? It doesn't have to go toward addiction, but the clientele that we're working with, it does happen to go to, to addiction. And so if, if in my idea, working with trauma is at the baseline of what I think I have to get to, to create that right relationship with self, God and the world. And um, so, uh, I knew when I did my CSAT, kind of in my looking forward, um, I was gonna do my CSAT and fin we finished the CSAT in the fall. We finished, I finished all my coursework and everything in the fall. And I knew that in the, in the spring I was gonna do, e I, I felt sure I was gonna do EMDR. But while I was down doing the CSAT work, one of our comp compadres that was in um, the class with us, um, suggested that instead of doing EMDR, I look at art. And I didn't know anything about it when he said that. I mean, it was brand new kind of idea for me. Um, and art is a close cousin to EMDR in many ways. As a matter of fact, the way that art started was um, Lainey Rosenweg was an EMDR therapist and um, was doing EMDR work. And she was told that what she was doing wasn't right and she couldn't call it EMDR anymore. And so she went and she says, okay, I won't. And she started and then built a program called Accelerated Resolution Therapy, which still uses some of EMDR's basics, 
but it's literally memory reprogramming. So I talk about it like a Photoshop editor so that we get to change our relationship to the memory and we get to change, we get to replace at points the memory and we get to take the power of the memory away so that people are not haunted by those memories and are not driven by those memories because I see memory as leading to motivation, which then leads to thoughts, which then lead to behaviors. So if I'm going to trace it back that way, um, memory is at the core, at the bottom of that kind of, and again, when I think about memory, I'm thinking about a relationship because when we have a memory, um, we're actually not remembering the event. We're remembering the last time we thought about the event. We're remembering our experience of the event. Well, we're remembering not even our experience of the event. We're remembering the last time we thought about our experience of the event. I see the difference. Which is, yes. Which is, um, which means that as I think any, as of an event now that happened in my childhood. So, um, I was remembering my 10th birthday, which was in the bicentennial year of our country. And I was in Boonesboro, Kentucky. Um, as I remember that event and I got, I got a mask and flippers and a snorkel for my birthday. Um, and it's funny that I can still remember those things. Right. But my memory of those things is shaped by all my memory, you know, 44 years later, all the events that have happened to me now color that event in Boonesboro, Kentucky. 44 years ago. And that's, uh, that memory isn't the same today as it was when I was 19, remembering that event, right? So it's, it's, it's a different memory. I have a different relationship to that memory than I did then. Is it the case? I was, re I was reading a little bit about this and it seemed like they were saying that part of how memory works, how, how the, it works in the brain is that every time you access the memory, it changes it a little bit. Is that it does. So one of the things they've discovered is when we store memories, we don't, it's not like the whole, it's not like there's a, a word document or pages document that's stored in a file somewhere is what happens is the olfactory part of the memory is stored in the olfactory part. The optical part is stored in the optical part. The sensor somatic part is stored somewhere else. Um, the audio part is stored somewhere else. And so all these parts are brought back together and they're recreated to create the memory. And so we're pulling memory parts from all over our brain together to remember something. And so if we can help, again, change how people remember, then we change the relationship to the memory and we change the power of the memory. And in changing the power of the memory, we, we can change the ability that the memory has to have control over us. So that's how I'm, that's my take. And I am new at this, right? I am very new at art. I've only been doing it a month and um, that month was interrupted by the pandemic. So I haven't been able to do it at all for the last, well, since the last time we talked a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> um, um, and so uh, I just know that even in my experience in going through the experiential training, I know that things in my brain have shifted and it, it's, it's a pretty remarkable shift. And the things that you can get at with it are pretty remarkable. And that is in a sense, creating a second order change that can parallel the first order change of stopping the behaviors. So as I think about 
how I will use art with my my addict population. We know that there are triggers that every addict has. For one of my clients, it was the clack of the, it was the way that their keyboard clicked and the audio of how their keyboard, it's so one of the things they had to do is they had to get a different keyboard so it sounded different. It, and I know that sounds crazy, but that sound trigger was enough to make them say, I've got to go look at porn, right? So we have those triggers that as addicts we deal with. So if, if I can change my memory's relationship to that trigger over time, I can change the power that that trigger has to send me off into needing to go to that behavior. And I think that's one of the, the most profound um, opportunities I see with art and working with our particular population, along with the idea of changing some of the woundedness that people experience just in terms of the memories of abuse and uh, sexual brokenness and betrayal that they've experienced. For sure. So, you're talking, so, so it sounds like there, there's a couple of dynamics going on. When, if for someone who's in an active acting out cycle, they have a relationship to, to the cycle. And um, like compulsive cycles, they're, they're built on a lot of memory, like a lot of memory of when I do this thing, this is the result. I, I act out in this way. I get this dopamine. I get this self-soothing. I get whatever benefit I get. And so there's a memory there that gets reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. And by changing some of the stimuli around it, changing some of the behaviors, some of the first order changes around it, incrementally, you get to work your way farther from that experience, change that experience. While at the same time, you're also talking about addressing like the, the core trauma, the core pain that drives us like all to begin with and working to change your experience of the memory of that initial event also, if I'm hearing you right. Or events. Or events. events, yes. yes. Probably. Yeah. More than one, more than one event, usually. Normally more than one event, yes. So most of our, most of our colleagues are not, or most of our, our clients are not one event, one and done kind of people. That's really fascinating. I'm thinking about, as you're talking about, you, you mentioned the, yeah, like your memory of getting the snorkel on the flippers and change the memory changing of that one, which, which makes sense. And I'm, I'm thinking about how I thought about some different events in my life, including some of some of my own my own painful moments too. When this thing happened 10, 15 years ago, it was awful and it was devastating. And for a long time after that, it would kind of make me nauseous to think about it. But then given some other work and some other reflection, some other gaining some other understanding perspective in some other ways. Now I think of the same memory and I, I kind of remember that it used to be super distressing, but I'm also like, it's not anymore. Like my, my whole, my experience of that memory and the people involved has, has changed a lot. And I mean, yeah, yeah, cognitively I can recognize, yeah, there was something wrong about that, but, um, but I'm not distressed about it in the same way. Um, is that kind of what you're talking about as part of, part of the, goal? I think that's, that's, that's a good generalization. And I, I but I think I want to keep it as a generalization. So, and, and let's, let's just use part of my story. So I'm one of those blessed few that was sexually abused by his mother. And that has powered a lot of my own story. It's uh, being able to hold the ands and the what's and the ifs of a mother my primary attachment figure who betrayed me. And then later on, I got engaged as a 20 year old and my fiance betrayed me. Um, and uh, I remember my brother and I were driving away from her house after collecting my things. She lived in Indiana and we lived in Oregon and I went to school in Florida. So 
<laughs> um, and so we were driving away after driving across country to pick up my things. And just even the way that that event was set up was awful um, when I got the ring back and all that stuff. Um, and my brother had to stop the car so I could throw up as we left that rural Indiana house. And so the first two major attachments, you know, from mother and then fiance, both being betrayals, then set the table for the rest of my story, right? So the anger that goes with in terms of relationship to women is part of what I have to acknowledge has been part of what has driven part of my own my own addiction story, part of my own uh, view of the world story, something that I have to be continually mindful of and continually aware of so that, so that I'm not driven by false falsehoods that are based on memories rather than what's real right now. So my work changes, the memory builds on itself. In other words, that memory with my fiance would be a very different memory. I mean, it's, it's a very different memory because my mother sexually abused me. It, 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 it affected me differently Someone else whose fiance betrays them, who has had a different story, will probably have a different reaction to the event of being betrayed by their fiance. That makes sense because each memory, yeah, they, they build on each other. I'm thinking about kind of a an EFT term, emotional emotions focused therapy term, the the idea of emotional raw spots. Like, um, you know, you you know, say you you criticize something that I do. If that's a unique experience and I haven't had that a lot, that'll be frustrating, irritating, kind of painful, but it'll be like, ah, ah, whatever, and kind of brush it off. But if, say, all the male figures in my life, or all my, all, a lot of people have criticized me for a lot of things, then it's like you're, you're, you're punching that spot on my arm that's already been punched a thousand times, and I'm just going to crumble um, because of the context created by all of, the, all of these other memories. Yes, and exactly. In, yeah, in the case of abuse, it's like <laughs> maybe emotional raw spots a bit mild of a term, because I imagine there's quite a bit of pain there yeah so and the art allows me to get at those in ways that traditional talk therapy doesn't so let's and access them in new ways and rewire them and so that they lose their power more uh, that's interesting just yeah that uh, i guess i i hadn't thought about how i mean it, it makes sense and i think maybe it just hasn't been a conscious thought about how the, the memories will, will build on each other. But I think that's, uh, it's a, yeah, that's a good framework to have that certainly, you know, some, someone, someone who wasn't abused by their mother would have a different relationship with the memory of, you know, their, their fiance uh, betraying them than, than someone who has been abused. Yeah, I think that's, that's why like the ACE scores become so important and why attachment theory becomes so important because mm -hmm. what they say in attachment theory at its core, it's not that you're always in tune. It's that you repair the rupture after the rupture occurs quickly because actually the ruptures actually help kids build resilience, right? Mm -hmm. Strength. And um, if you don't have any ruptures, you're not going to have any resilience. So, um, memory work in a sense is is repairing ruptures so there can be resilience so one question i have about this that this concept that i feel really excited about 
some of this is reminding me a little, a little bit about um, when I uh, read, uh, you know, or actually audiobooked, uh, Waking the Tiger by Peter Levine, he, he talks about the trauma renegotiation quite a bit. And it, it sounds comparable to, 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 to this idea. You do some work with, with an original memory, a memory where you felt helpless and immobile, and you, you find a way, you know, using an embodied approach also to create for yourself a sense of mobility in it. And part of that is also working with the narrative to where, you know, there's this idea of kind of, kind of reimagining or renegotiating the, the memory to kind of the way I was understanding it was kind of create like an alternate ending in your memory. And when I've tried to, to talk about this with people, sometimes, some, sometimes they get a little bit caught up on that saying, well, you know, but when that, that in, in that memory of when that dog bit me, like the dog actually bit me, I didn't jump over a fence. I didn't climb a tree uh, like I, I'm trying to renegotiate. Uh, but like, and then they sometimes get caught up on like what, what actually happened. And the, the idea of like rewriting a memory or like tampering with the memory, sometimes that seems to, to catch some people off guard a little bit. Um, how, how do you work with that? Or no, it's funny. Mm. It's funny you use the example of a dog bite because one of the training videos we watched when we were, we were doing art training was of Lainey working with uh, a post person and she had been attacked on the job and so by a dog and mauled by the dog so badly that she was in the hospital for over a week trying to repair, right? Oh, so major trauma. Mm -hmm. um, that trauma led to uh, a, an agoraphobia that lasted a couple of years. She wasn't able to work. Um, and Laney worked to replace that memory. And it was at that point, memory replacement. And as you watched it, the whole event changed so that now she, because she loved dogs before, and you know, this was, you know, and so by doing the memory replacement, yes, she completely changed the memory, not the facts of what happened to her, but the memory. And so that memory of the dog mauling her, which was so immobilizing and stopping her from doing her job and also stopping her from doing things that she loved to do, like trail running and stuff like that. That was part of her, her love in life. Um, all of a sudden after just one session, she was able to get back to the job and, you know, she was kind of, Lainey was the last stop on this woman's therapy tour, trying to figure out what was going on, but doing the memory replacement allowed her to, to get back into it. And it's funny because my trainer actually, while he was up doing training with Laney at Laney's place, because it was actually the post person was in Laney's city. He ran into the post person. This was several years after the second video in terms of was shot when she was back on the job and she's still doing great. She says the incredible life change. And so if I can, if I'm able to do memory replacement therapy with, with clients so that they're not immobilized by traumas that happen to them, I think that I'm very unloving and very unkind not doing so. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, especially if we, we come from a, like an ethical standpoint of, of, of do the most good. Yeah, um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm responding to this <laughs> similarly to when my, my dad used to try to explain like algebra to me or something. I'd be, I'd be like, I kind of like see how it works, but I, I'd still want to like know all like in the ins and outs of why and how, and I couldn't quite always get that, but but I could kind of still function with it. So. No, it's... Yeah. So I think that I'm trying to write tentatively right now 
schedule another training here in the Portland area in the fall. Yeah. And you kind of have to experience it to understand it. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, by the way, I won't get reimbursed for hosting a training. So there's no monetary gain in me in that. It's just uh, getting more therapists to practice. So there's a community of us doing it here because life is always better in community as we're experiencing even today. Um, so, um, (laughs) but bringing in some people that I respect and like to teach and work with us, um, and, and help. And it would be great for me to go through, I get to go through a refresher for free as well by doing that. And, um, so hopefully in the fall, there'd be some stuff that coming up so that try to get some stuff stepped for you guys as well. If you guys are really interested in pursuing it. Yeah, it sounds like a really great resource and and a really great tool because like 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 you're saying, I mean, I mean we we do have these memories, the and these we have these experiences that that are very real experiences and um and they I mean, and the the experience never goes away. Like the like the pain the pain you've gone through is still there. It's very real. And so it sounds like and I don't hear us saying pretend it didn't happen or or be in denial about it or minimize it or, or stuff it. And I don't, I don't hear you talking about repressing the memory as much as kind of rewriting your experience of it or, mm-hmm. or renegotiating your relationship to the memory uh, or to the, to the memory of the experience. And, and yeah, when, when you talk about kind of the end goal of restoring mobility and functioning and capacity to be present with yourself and relate to people, um, I mean, that does, that does seem like a, good, a pretty good payoff. Yeah. And the EMDR therapists that were training in art with me will still use EMDR at certain places, but nearly all of them have moved to art because it's so much more quick uh, a protocol. I mean, it's, it, it's, it, it doesn't take as long to go through uh, an art protocol as it would the several weeks of going through an EMDR protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some people, some of my colleagues have referred it to as EMDR on steroids. <laughs> um, so it's, I, I, and it's a lot less expensive to get trained in it. I think that's the other piece. So I, I'm sold. So as you can tell. I can tell. And thank you, <laughs> thank you for bringing it here. We'll go ahead and um, start, start winding down. But for the, so, so for the person who, who's listening, uh, well, I mean, sounds like for, for, for the practitioner who's listening, the, <laughs> The idea might be, hey, look into art because or accelerated resolution therapy because it's spiffy and cool. For the for the the, the casual person or the the non-clinical person who's listening, um, I guess um, Stephen and Ben, what are so, what are some some last lingering thoughts on how to approach this idea of making lasting changes in your life? Um, I mean, obviously, you know, see an ART or an EMDR therapist if you can, but barring that, um, what so- is one of the things we talked about, and I talked about third order change being changing the relationship to self. Um, and I also talked about it being changing the relationship to others. Um, and so one of the things we talked about last time that I think is, is so important to highlight, you guys and I, we both run groups for sex addicts. And uh, then there are 12 step groups for sex addicts. The thing about 12 step programs or sex addiction groups is you get to be in a place where people meet around their brokenness and their weakness. And so they can really be who they are rather than have to hide behind masks. And all of a sudden that is a place where the relational healing to other people can start. And I don't think we can underline 
the importance of, of group work, whether it's a 12 step, 12 tradition group, or whether it's a therapy group for people that are struggling with addiction to get into, because you have to have that, that, that place where you can start to experience secure attachment in a safe place. So you can start living that out in a place that's not always safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think a lot of that um, uh, in, in the context of shame reduction as well, like, um, but the way I often conceptualize shame for clients is that, that shame's power is in darkness, is in secret. Um, you know, when, when you feel shame, you feel like it needs to be hidden, and then it has the power to, to have some control over you to cause you to, to continue to act out and do shame. And it creates this, you know, negative feedback loop where you, you do shameful things and you feel bad, and so you need to do shameful things to cope with that and you feel more shame. And, um, but if you bring shame into the open in a safe space, which a group around that is a safe space to bring that, then it, it takes, takes the power of the shame away. And, and, and actually, I, I think it actually transforms it into the ability to, to make change um, and, and to do something different because, because now you're in a community of people that understand you don't feel so much shame. You, you feel the ability to now to, to, to do something different, to make a different choice. I, I've seen that too. And, and I would want to emphasize that, that idea of um, working to reduce the shame and especially through, through relationship and through community. I know, I mean, with the 12 steps in particular, one of the major critiques of them is you know how we how we work with the idea of powerlessness and there there's a lot of critique of that powerless narrative saying wow how could you be so disempowering of people and and yet it sounds like the which i mean is is always a concern we don't want to disempower people but but it sounds like kind of counterintuitively uh what happens is that when everyone kind of collectively disempowers themselves that turns itself on its head and there become there there's a freedom there like when i when i no longer have to be strong when i no longer have to be all put together and when it's kind of normal to bring the, the weaknesses and the brokenness in and to be fully accepted, fully known, then there, there's a peculiar freedom or a peculiar strength there. And then I'm thinking too of kind of how, again, how we, how we develop resilience. Resilience is not the absence of pain and definitely not the avoidance of pain, but it's the recovering from pain. And it's, it's not the avoidance of conflict with people, it's the, the repairing of conflict rupture with people. So it does sound like some major first steps toward toward these lasting changes. They, they do have to do with working toward presence with self, presence with presence with others, fully knowing yourself, allowing yourself to to fully know others, and and obviously there's a lot of specific techniques and exercises we could employ in there. And if you want to know some of those, uh, reach, reach out to us. We're happy to talk. But um, but as as major concepts, those seem like really important ones and then relationships within one's own family unit also need to change which is partly why again i like doing couples work i mean one of the statistics that's hard i mean that's just a hard reality for us is if only the addict gets into recovery and only the addict gets help the chances of that marriage surviving or that partnership surviving goes down drastically because you're changing i mean this is just systems theory right you're changing one right. part of the system it's a major part of the system that the whole system has gravitated around and if you take that and you change it, it is transformed, then the whole system has to be transformed. And 
the system needs help to be transformed. Uh, so rela those relationships have to change and be changed and given the skills to change as well. And that's a, a part of that whole relational change as well. I want to tag that and come back to talk about family systems in another episode because mm -hmm. that's super important. And I think we all have a lot to say about that. Uh, so we will uh, teaser. We'll have Stephen Graham back and we'll talk about family systems. Uh, I think Stephen, probably you need to get Mary Jane Wilt to talk about family systems with you because she's she is the the foremost authority on that. Yes, we we've uh, uh, we had her on the podcast uh, a while back, so we might have to re-release that and or have a sequel because she is quite amazing. So <laughs> shout outs to Mary Jane Wilt. Uh, Stephen, thanks so much for coming and sharing a Saturday morning with us. Uh, yeah, thanks, Steve. Absolutely. If, Thank you, guys. Uh, it's great to see you guys in the midst of quarantine, just to see yes. your faces. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, human faces. So when not, this is all over, I have big hugs for, for all of you. Yes, <laughs> air virtual hugs. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Stephen, if a, if a listener wanted to reach out to you and find you on the webs or in real life, uh, where can they find you? They can find me at gracefallcounseling.com. And that's Grace Fall not full grace fall like you fall into grace counseling.com gracefallcounseling.com yep. excellent look it up he's great he's fun he's in vancouver it's <laughs> it's wonderful so that is that thank you for listening along and give us your feedback five star ratings dollars through patreon.com slash council we like that too and let's keep the conversation going We love your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcouncilpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Our theme music is by Trent Price. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Music